We continue our sermon series this morning on encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we'll hear another Jesus uh, person encounter and we'll learn about what discipleship means as we look at this encounter. That encounter takes place in uh, Matthew chapter 8 and I'll be reading verses 18 through 27. That's found on page 1512 in your pew Bibles. And before I read it, I'm going to do something a little different than I usually do. I'm going to um, make an announcement. Um, so a lot of people worship uh, online. Some of you, when you've been sick or away, you've worshiped online too. Uh, having an online ministry, and welcome all you online viewers, is, is really great. It's benefited our church. I think many of you have benefited from it. It takes a lot of volunteers. And right now we're a little short on audio and visual people. So if you are someone, and honestly, sometimes I'm talking to people, if you're 13 here, um, you, you may be better equipped than some of us middle-aged folks. <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm just saying. So if, you, if this is something you think, and I've done it up there a couple times, believe it or not, it's a lot of fun. Uh, if that's something you think, hey, I would like to try that, and, and you can be available on, on occasional Sundays, uh, please consider that. But now let's turn to the gospel of our Lord as found in Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 18. Big crowds are following Jesus, and when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Just then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, um, let me first go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. There is so much going on in this Bible text, uh, you could preach a small series of sermons on it. Uh, so I can't possibly talk about everything in this text. Because the series is Encounters with Jesus, I want to zero down on just one of the encounters in that story I just read. I want to zero down on Jesus' encounter with the very first of the two volunteers. The one who said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Um, two men approach Jesus, obviously, to be volunteers, and Jesus kind of pours cold water on them both. He sort of puts a little bit of a stop sign in front of both of them. And you can kind of understand why he does that in the case of the second man, right? The second man comes to volunteer for Jesus, and he qualifies his discipleship. He says, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, mm, nope. If you follow me, this has to be your number one commitment. This is the central organizing principle of your life. Even your family life is subsumed under my lordship. And that, that's a hard word. 
It deserves a sermon all to itself. I'm not going to preach that sermon today, but it's consistent, right? We've heard Jesus say that before. So you can kind of understand why Jesus says no to the second volunteer. But what about the first volunteer? There's no qualification in his discipleship. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It doesn't matter. Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm all in. I'm ready to go right now. I'm 110% committed. Jesus, I will run through a wall for you. What's wrong with this candidate? He seems perfect. He seems full of enthusiasm. Why wouldn't you want him on your team? Why does Jesus, it's not exactly reject him, but certainly say, hold on there a second when he says, hey there, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Why does Jesus reject the first volunteer? I've been thinking about that question this week, and as I reflected on it, it made me realize, do you realize that in all the Gospels, Jesus never ever accepts a volunteer un, without qualification. Nobody who comes up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. Not one time does Jesus say, oh, really? Okay, come on. Yeah, hop in. Every single time, there's like a, hold on a second, let's think this through before Jesus takes on this person. When Jesus does call someone, it's, it's Jesus doing the initiation, not the person coming, right? Jesus calls and they follow all the volunteers, there's a little bit of resistance. Uh, Luke 9, there's another story where three volunteers come to Jesus, and Jesus says, hold on. Um, the rich young man comes up to Jesus, and he looks like he's interested in being a disciple, and Jesus says to him, well, you've you got to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and that's the end of that for him. Jesus does the same thing with Peter, and it's not quite volunteering that Peter does, but there's certainly a volunteering spirit. It really reminds me of this first volunteer. Right before Jesus dies, right, he tells his disciples, all of you are going to leave me. All of you are going to abandon me. And you remember what Peter says, not me, Lord. I will never, everyone else might abandon you, but I will never abandon you. It's the same kind of spirit as volunteer one, right? I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to Peter, not only will you abandon me, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows the next morning. So why does Jesus put the kibosh on volunteers? What is going on there? Well, let me gently success. Let me gently, I gave it away there. Let me gently suggest that the reason that Jesus pushes back against this first volunteer is that when he volunteers, he's got a little excess of ambition. That when he volunteers, he's got his eyes set on his own personal success and his own personal glory. Now, why do I say that? There are clues in the text that point this way. First of all, think of the context. Right now, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. To read the Gospel of Matthew, there hasn't been a single person to speak out against Jesus at this point, and all you have is these enormous crowds following Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. He preaches as one with authority and not like the teachers of the law. His sermons are excellent. And his miracles, of course, everybody loves his miracles. And so everybody wants a selfie with Jesus. And they're following him everywhere. In fact, verse 18, right? Why is he getting into the boat? To escape the paparazzi. 
to get away from the crowds. That's why he's getting into the boat, because he's so popular. Now, think of that context of how popular he is. What is the profession of the first volunteer? What is his job? It's in the text. He's a teacher of the law. When he addresses Jesus, what does he call Jesus? Teacher. I will follow you wherever you go. He's talking teacher to teacher. May I gently suggest that, that, that this man is thinking of his professional advancement when he comes to Jesus. He's thinking that if he can follow Jesus and spend some time with Jesus and be affiliated with Jesus, that's going to be, if you're spending time with the number one teacher, that's really going to be good for your career as a teacher. Having Jesus on his resume is really going to help him when he somewhere down the road applies for that plum job in Jerusalem. This ambitious volunteer wants to get in Jesus' boat so he can be hashtag blessed. That's one clue in the text. Here's a second clue. It's what Jesus says to him. Jesus responds to his enthusiasm by saying, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's exactly what you'd say to someone if you knew that they weren't thinking of hardship, they were thinking of blessing. They were thinking of prosperity as they went forward. Jesus says that to him because he knows the man's mind is not on hardship, but success and prosperity. Friend, if you are upwardly mobile, if you're ambitious for success, you don't want to get into my boat, says Jesus, because that's not where this boat is heading. And then as a kind of visual demonstration that this is not where this boat is heading, um, the disciples do get into the boat, and the very first thing that happens to them is this terrific storm. Not just a regular storm, a storm that makes the water crash over the front of the boat and makes the disciples think that they are going to drown. This storm is no accident. This storm is a visual representation of the truth of discipleship set in opposition to what that first volunteer thinks discipleship is. This storm is sent to teach us what it means to follow Jesus and what it sometimes looks like. And I think it teaches us two things. First, it teaches us, obviously, that following Jesus will not always be so easy. Following Jesus will always be a beautiful journey. And when you follow Jesus, you have these amazing eternal promises that secure you in everything. And when you follow Jesus and you do his work, you always knew that, know that you're doing incredibly important and meaningful work. And when you follow Jesus, there are certainly many moments of contentment and happiness and joy, like Easter morning here, when Larry plays and everybody sings and it feels like the roof is coming off this place, or the smile we have on our face when the kids come down for the children's sermon, or the bigger smile we have on our face when those same kids get a little older and walk up here and make profession of faith. There's lots of joys along the journey. But there are also days where the storm is pounding your boat and the water washes over the stern and you feel like you're going to drown and it seems like Jesus is asleep. I want to say something to the younger people here about discipleship, following Jesus as you get older. I know that sometimes in school and even in church and sometimes with things I say and sometimes maybe some things that teachers say or chapel speakers say, 
that it makes it sound like being a Christian is full of happiness and full of joy and sunshine and it's the best possible thing and it always feels like Jesus is right here with you. There are lots of days where that's true. But there are lots of days where it's not like that. There are lots of days where you're discouraged and you wish you could hear the voice of Jesus more clearly. There are days where you feel like the disciples in the boat. And I want you to know that now, and I think that's why this story's in the Bible. I want you to know that now so that when those days come for you, and all of us who are older like me have been through those days. We know those days are coming, and we're still here. But when you're young and those days come for you, that you won't give up, that you'll understand that that's part of the journey too, okay? Sometimes Jesus leads us into a storm. And sometimes you can kind of understand why you need to go into that storm. And sometimes you have no idea at all why you have to go into that storm. But when you're in that storm, Jesus is still in your boat. Doesn't mean you're going in the wrong direction. And our, our responsibility, our, what we do as Christians is always the same. We stand up in those storms with faith, hope, and love, and we fix our eyes on Jesus. The first volunteer thinks that the path of following Jesus is going to be sunshine and happiness and prosperity. And the storm teaches us that, nope, sometimes it's really, really hard. The second thing we learn about discipleship from this storm is that we disciples are not as strong or smart as we think we are. In the Gospel of Matthew, this story is the very first time that the disciples actually do something, even though it's chapter 8. So the disciples have been following for a while, they've been listening to Jesus, they've been going with him, but they haven't said anything and they haven't done anything yet. This is the first time they have independent agency. This is the first time they actually speak and act. How do they do? Eh, not very well. The storm comes, and they go into panic mode, and they go into self-preservation mode. Lord, save us, we're drowning. Panic and self-preservation. Jesus rebukes them because he thinks that in the storm, his disciples should do a little better than panic and self-preservation. That's, that's not the perfect response. So the disciples, first time they act, they kind of fall flat in their face. And, and I think you know, if you know anything about the Gospels, this is kind of a repeated pattern. The disciples don't always fall flat on their face, but they do more often than not. It's usually misunderstanding, and it's often failure. That's simply the story. And maybe the best way to see this is, think about the Gospel as a whole, right? All of the Gospels have this tremendous happy ending, right? Jesus conquers death, he rises from the grave. There's this triumphant scent that Satan is beaten and, and the world is completely changed because Jesus has risen. As we get to the, as you think of the whole gospel, as we got to that happy ending, how much of the disciples' work and partnership uh, is responsible for that happy ending? What percentage of that accomplished work lies with the efforts of the disciples? About 50%, 25%, 10%, 1%? The answer is 0%. It's not even a question. This is all Jesus' work. This is all the work of the man in the boat. This young volunteer comes up to Jesus full of ambition, full of confidence, thinking about what he can do. 
And Jesus' reply in the storm that follows suggests to him, hold on there. You are nowhere as strong as you think you are. I think that many of us, and certainly myself included, start out our journey of discipleship a lot like this first volunteer. We step out, in my case, step out of seminary, and you think, Lord, I'm, I'm going to do the stuff. I'm going to work so hard. Oh, man, I'm going to figure out all the answers to the things, and I want to fix all the problems. I'm going to claim every square inch of creation for you, just like a good reformed soldier. But now that I'm older and I've been through a few storms, I am far less confident in my ability to figure out all the answers. And I am certainly far less confident in my ability to fix all the things. As I get older, I find myself more and more giving it to Jesus. And realizing that that's where the power is. Now, that doesn't mean I stopped, I've stopped working for the kingdom or that I'm not doing the best I can or I'm not striving as hard as I ever was before. It's just that in my striving, I'm far less focused on my own capability and, and much more focused on him. And this isn't about me. I, I think this is something that happens with all disciples. I think this happens in all of us as we get older and mature as disciples. We look to the man in the boat with us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Right? Discipleship doesn't get more faithful than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? The great German theologian during World War II wrote many books. People loved his books. They still read his books. He was influential. He taught. He went all over the world. He resisted Hitler and, as you know, got sent to prison. And he was executed for his resistance to Hitler just a few weeks before the war ended. Shortly before his death, while he was in the middle of the storm of prison, right, that, that whole prison sentence was his storm. While he was in that storm, he wrote this poem in which he opened up his heart and he disclosed how he felt about his own discipleship. And the poem is, is based around this question, who am I? Who am I really as a person? And, and, and it's a prayer where he's talking to God. And, and at the beginning of the poem, he says this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll quote bits of it. He says, Lord, who am I? Am I that great heroic theologian that people think I am? Am I that person who stands up to the Nazis and who everyone thinks is such a bold and fearless disciple? Is that me? Or am I more like what my heart says of myself, what I know myself to be, which is, and now I'm quoting, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors and flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, trembling with anger, powerless, weary and empty at praying, thinking, making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This titan of discipleship that some people think I am or this, this weak and trembling soul that I feel myself to be. Who are we? Here's Bonhoeffer's answer at the end of the poem. Who am I? They mock me these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, you know, O oh God, that I belong to you. 
What is our anchor in our discipleship? Where does the power of our discipleship and the hope of our discipleship come from? It's not what people think of us. It's not in our capacities. It's that we are not our own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Our power, our hope is not in our capabilities as individuals or as a church. Our hope is in the man in the boat with us. And so we will do our best to be disciples. We will try to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with our God, love each other well, discern God's truth, send his gospel into the world. But ultimately we'll depend on him and at the end of history, he will stand up in the boat, stretch his arms over the storm and say, peace, be still. And it will be still. And the peace will go on forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, you know how hard we work to be your disciples. And you know both the places where we succeed and we're faithful and, and the places where we fall on our face. We turn to you, Lord. Uh, you are our hope. You're our Alpha and Omega. You're the ground under our feet. You are our past and our present and our future. Stand up in our boat, Lord. Show us the way. Still our seas. Calm our fears. And make us faithful. Amen.